Hello, this is the Past and Pending Podcast, and I am your host, Adam Sexton. In 1968, Eric Norton of Playboy magazine viewed Stanley Kubrick not long after the film 2001 A Space Odyssey was released, and the following query was made in the interview. Norton asked, Arthur Clarke has said of the film, If anyone understands it on the first viewing, we failed in our intention. Why should the viewer have to see a film twice to get its message? Cooper replies, I don't agree with that statement of Arthur's, and I believe he made it facetiously. The very nature of the visual experience in 2001 is to give the viewer an instantaneous, visceral reaction that does not, and should not, require further amplification. Just speaking generally, however, I would say that there are elements in any good film that would increase the viewer's interest and appreciation on a second viewing. The momentum of a movie often prevents every stimulating detail or nuance from having a full impact the first time it's seen. The whole idea that a movie should be seen only once is an extension of our traditional conception of the film as an ephemeral entertainment rather than a visual work of art. We don't believe that we should hear a great piece of music only once, or see a great painting once, or even read a great book just once. But the film has until recent years been exempted from the category of art, a situation that I'm glad is finally changing." End quote. For this episode of the Past and Pending Podcast, I will be talking about my history of viewing and revisiting the film 2001 A Space Odyssey which began for me in the mid-90s, 1990s I should say, and has continued to this present day. This is not going to be a review of the film or an analyzation of sorts. Uh, People smarter and more creative than I have done so already in the podcast format. What I wish to get on record here is how the film came into my life, my awareness and how I watched the film over the years in the formats that were available to me. This is a film that I love, but I had to grow up with and live with. And I'll touch on what attracted me to it because I can't avoid that, but this is mostly a viewer's history. If I feel not up to the task to talk about it critically, at least I can talk about it in a specific context. The advantage that I and others of my generation have had with films like this is that technology has given us the ability to see films and revisit them with greater ease. Before home video, revivals in theaters were the only option. And a film such as 2001 A Space Odyssey, it has been said, can only be truly appreciated in a theater on the biggest screen possible with the best sound possible. And for a good portion of my life, I never thought that I would have the opportunity to see it that way. The story begins as few stories do with the memory, my memory, of playing arcade games at a showbiz pizza when I was a child. I don't recall how old I was, but it had to have been in the mid-1980s. I can remember sights and sounds and sensations, and oddly, I don't recall if the pizza was any good. It probably wasn't, but I do recall some of the games that I played. I recall playing Ikari Warriors. I recall playing some skee-ball. But what I mostly recall is the moment that I foolishly tried to play Star Trek Strategic Operations Simulator. This is the vector game that Sega released in 1983, 
and Chobis Pizza in that arcade area had the sit-down, partially enclosed cabinet where the chair design was like the bridge chairs from the motion picture set. I believe that the controls were on the armrest. I was uh, <laughs> woefully unprepared. And the cost for playing the game was higher than other cabinet prices. I believe it was whatever the token equivalent of $1 was compared to 25 or 50 cents for the other games. Uh, and those were prices that I were usually used to. But I put the tokens in and tried my best. I didn't last very long because I just didn't really know what I was supposed to do. But it truly captured my imagination nevertheless. Not just the cabinet design or the artwork, but the vector graphics and the sound design. But mostly it was a presentation of moving through space. I had never seen a video game do that before. It's at this point in this uh, episode that I had to do the unthinkable and quote Bill Cosby. And I do so because there is a purpose for doing so. One of Cosby's most memorable stand-up lines was... I told you that story so I could tell you this story. And I'm telling you about my experience with Star Trek Arcade because I eventually dreamt about it. I dreamt about walking up to a Star Trek Arcade cabinet, uh, but there were two details that were different about it. In the dream, the cabinet is of the stand-up variety, and in this dream, I physically go through the monitor and into outer space, or at least the vector graphics version of outer space. I don't recall if I climbed onto the cabinet and intentionally forced my way through the screen or if something pulled me through like a tractor beam. I just remember that the glass barrier isn't there when I go through. Uh, messing with the controls that were beyond me no longer mattered. I was in outer space of the vector graphics variety, but still I was in outer space floating through it. There's no planets to see. There's just the stars in the background. And in the foreground, you know, the way that they do in films to visualize movement in space, uh, the stars are passing by. I'm not even frightened by how vast it seems or that I'm trapped in space. It's just a black void of white dots, but I mean, it felt like it was enough. And speaking of another uh, film reference, uh, in the first Men in Black film that came out in 1997 there was a similar sentiment about the visual uh, splendor of space which is made on two occasions in the opening sequence and at the end and it involves two aging MIB agents who know that they're about to have their memories of being agents and knowing about extraterrestrials erased and with precious seconds to go they both look up at the stars and they say they're beautiful aren't they the stars no one ever just looks at them anymore but they are beautiful and to quote the serial rapist Bill Cosby again I told you that story so I could tell you this story very few science fiction films capture the look of space like Stanley Cooper's 2001 A Space Odyssey a distinct characteristic about the film is its deliberate pace. There are many shots and sequences in the film that don't just seem content to have a deliberate pace. I think there are shots that simply regard the geography of a scene. 
and this applies both to scenes inside spaceships and outer space travel, but 2001 is not in a hurry. And in a film with many memorable moments, I admire the film for the stretches where it doesn't just take a breather, so to speak. It it sits back and observes. And the awareness that I'm watching a film disappears, and that sensation of being lost in space, in the black void with countless white dots, I reclaim that sensation about the, that the dream about the Star Trek arcade cabinet instilled in me. So 2001 not only simulates that sensation, but in the climactic Stargate sequence, it intensifies it. It just broke my brain somehow. It was destined to become a film that I would revisit from the first time as a teenager and for the next 25 years of my life and counting. Now, thanks to film reference guides like the annual video movie guides by Nick Nick Martin and Marsha Porter and Leonard Martin, I knew about 2001 a few years before I saw it. The capsule reviews in both guides were positive and persuasive enough to have me file a mental note to watch it should I ever get a chance to do so. And as I talked about in the previous episode, my parents acquired a satellite dish and receiver around 1992, and channels such as Turner Classic Movies, the Independent Film Channel, HBO, Cinemax, and AMC would soon give me a crash course in film appreciation. And luckily, we were able to buy satellite television channel guides, which were always big phone book-like books, and I would scan the index pages for films that I'd had interest in in the hopes to record them. I don't recall the exact date that that happened, but the first time that I saw 2001 was on Cinemax. And it will come as no surprise to anyone who grew up watching cable channels like uh, HBO and Cinemax that for its broadcast for on that channel, but it's a, it's a widescreen movie, it was pan and scanned on the channel broadcast, or as was usually stated, you know, edited for television and or formatted to fit your screen. And while the film worked for me regardless, it wasn't until a couple of years or so when it was broadcast again on Turner Classic Movies that I would see the letterbox version. Without the panning or scanning, I was finally able to appreciate the film in all its splendor, or should I say as much splendor as a TV channel broadcast back then could display. And I would like to say that the rest of my family was as as receptive of the film as I was, but that would be a lie. The film's pacing and unusual narrative scared them off, and because the playback would sometimes show tracking issues or limitations of whatever VHS tape that I use for recording, I often record the film multiple times. My parents were very annoyed by that as well, and it was never going to be perfect, and I could hardly justify it myself. I didn't want the limitations of the format to distract me from the experience of watching it. The immersion is the thing. But in that space between TCM broadcasts and the DVD format, I did the only thing that I could do and bought the book by Arthur C. Clarke in the film soundtrack on cassette. The book, much like the film, did provide some insight on how I could interpret some of the images or sequences from the film, especially the final scene. But there was quite a bit of things that flew over my head, and I just chalked that up to deficiencies in my then vocabulary. But the soundtrack was something that I took due 
took to very easily. And it wasn't always pleasant to listen to, but, uh, I mean, like the film itself, I had to live with those tracks in order to accept them outside the viewing of the film. And speaking of the score, I had read that Alex North had composed and contributed an original score for the film, but Kubrick decided to use the classical selections that he had used as guide pieces, and reportedly... North didn't know that this decision was made until he saw the film at its premiere. Now, thanks to streaming services such as uh, YouTube or Tidal, you can easily hunt down and listen to his score, and it's lovely work. But I understand why Kubrick made his decision, because anyway, it's hard to disassociate those tracks from the viewing experience. Now, it wasn't until the DVD dropped in 2000 as part of the Stanley Kubrick collection series that the video and the audio quality could be improved. I bought it in 2002, not too long after I acquired a DVD player for the first time. And yes, video and audio-wise, it was a big improvement. The DVD would be reissued several times over the next two decades, one more than on more than one format. Once again on DVD in a two-disc two set, on Blu-ray, and eventually on 4K Blu-ray last year. One day I will upgrade to that format, but I'm not buying another TV until my trusty LCD HDTV dies off. But it wasn't until fall of last year that I was able to see 2001 in the best possible experience made available, the big screen. And in honor of the film's 50th anniversary in the fall of 2018, a 4K restoration was made available to 350 IMAX theaters in the country, and the Malco Razorback Cinema in Fayetteville, Arkansas, just so happened to be one of them. Now, I was psyched beyond description, and it was all I could think about that week. So on August 25th, on a, uh, on a sunny Saturday afternoon... I purchased my ticket and a large soda and made my way through the entrance to the IMAX screening room. And it was close to the start time, and I didn't know if trailers would be shown beforehand, so I was moving at a fast pace. I handed my ticket stub to the clerk outside the entrance, opened the glass door, and as I took my first step into the darkened hallway leading to the screening room, this is what I heard. the Overture music. I never thought that I would see overtures or intermissions in a modern-day theater screening, let alone for 2001. And as I kept walking to my seat through that little corridor that leads into the auditorium, I recalled that feeling of floating through space as I had in my childhood dream. I made my way to a seat and found to my surprise that I was one of maybe seven or eight people in the entire IMAX screening room. Now, not that I was complaining. This meant that the chances of loudmouths or hecklers would be gone. And thankfully, those other viewers who were there, way in the back, didn't really make a sound. And I suspect that they knew why they were here, as I, as did I. The overture continued. I settled in the seat, and all the feels kept washing over me. I felt blessed and fortunate, and to be honest, 
so much of my theater going experiences are simply going through the motions. It's not often that I found myself sitting in a dark screening room just thankful to be there at the beginning of a journey that I've often dreamt about. And maybe that's due to the overall quality of movie going these days. Maybe it's because I'm watching 2001 on the biggest damn screen available to me. And the best part was, I was almost alone and I would have been just fine if I was by myself. Viewing 2001 has always felt uh, like an immersive viewing that required solitude or was made better by it. The 4K restoration was a marvel. The meticulous detail of space, planets, and ship designs were finally seen on a scope that it could be truly appreciated. The sound design in particular was crazy and enveloping and quite possibly the most galvanizing aspect. Now that was never more truer than when the Stargate sequence hit, and it goes without saying that the visual effects on display in that sequence are imaginative, mysterious, and memorable, but how I was truly grabbed was the sound. My seat was on the first row on the elevated portion of the screening room, and in front of my row was a guardrail. Now, I was respectful as I did this, but I did rest my feet on the rail. These are not reclining seats. These are regular stadium uh, seats. And during the Stargate sequence, the sounds of that sequence, the low end, the rumblings, it made the guardrails shake with vibrations. Now, that's the first time. That's a first for me in terms of seeing films in the theater. And despite my large soda, which was a Coke, I believe, I never once left my seat for a restroom break. Not only was I the last one to leave the room, I stayed not only past the end credits, and not only past the point where the Blue Danube waltz stopped, but even when the blue MPAA rating title card showed up. 2001's IMAX run was brief, and I may not have this chance again, so I was going to milk this for all it was worth. I really didn't want to leave. There was no usher to shoo me out. It was one of the most peaceful, delightful viewing experiences that I've ever had. Would I have liked to see it with a bigger crowd, if only for the confirmation that more people in the area had the same enthusiasm for the film that I did? Yeah, sure, in a way. They may have shown up at later showtimes. This was at the earliest matinee. I don't know if I pointed that out earlier. But I was finally able to check this one off the bucket list. My viewing relationship with 2001 A Space Odyssey had finally come full circle. So, what now? Where do I go from here besides watching the film on Blu-ray for the foreseeable future? I recently purchased Michael Benson's Space Odyssey, which is a highly acclaimed making a book that has received high praise from people like Martin Scorsese and Tom Hanks. I can always reread Arthur C. Clarke's series of Odyssey novels. Well, I've only read the first one. There's the sequels to be uh, considered. I've always recently, uh, I've also recently watched 2010: The Year We Made Contact, the 1984 sequel directed by Peter Hyams, which is an excellent film in its own right. I suspect that my relationship with this film is never really over, and that 2001: A Space Odyssey will continue to be a film 
in my library, one that I'll revisit every now and then, to marvel at and to lose myself in, and to remind myself of the dream of floating through the abyss of space without fear or alarm, as only cinema and dreams can do. Before I sign off, I need to provide an update on the availability of this podcast. I have recently switched hosting sites from Podbean to Anchor.fm. The new URL is anchor.fm backslash the past in the pending podcast. As of this recording, the podcast is available through uh, Anchor as well as Google Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, and Radio Public with more sites to follow. If you have enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe and like if possible or send a positive review if possible. If you want to send feedback, you can do so through email at avidacrojam at gmail.com. I can also be reached via Twitter at avidacrojam. I've wanted to do this episode for a long time and it's underwent many drafts, many mutations, And I'm glad to have finally seen it through. More episodes will be on the horizon, uh, including one with a guest who has appeared on the show in the past. So once again, my name is Adam Sexton, and this has been the Past in the Pending Podcast. Remember, you can't appreciate what you have now if you don't appreciate what came before. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.